Welcome into another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. On today's episode, we have Paul Reddick. Paul is a speaker, he's an author, he's a baseball coach. He has his own website that he's the founder of, BaseballEducationCenter.com. You should check it out. Great content, great resources on on just everything in regards to player development and and coaching. Paul was the uh, director, camp director, at the Yogi Berra Museum for 15 years. Something that he talks about in this episode, which is pretty cool. Anytime you have a testimonial from Yogi Berra, um, he's been an, an author. He's written seven seven books. Uh, he has over 740,000 people who subscribe to his daily newsletter. That is uh, very impressive. And he's the host of, of several podcasts, too. So if you want to connect with Paul, BaseballEducationCenter.com is the best way to go about it. But he's been doing this for over 20 years. Great guy, great coach. He shares some really great insight in, into recruiting in this episode, some development, some of his own background, and some of the projects that he's working on as well. So great stuff. Appreciate Paul coming on. If you head to PatrickJonesBaseball.com slash develop and put your first name in and your email, you will be sent over time information on college recruiting and player development, more specifically hitting. So if you're interested in learning more about you know hitting development, hitting drills, mental game tips, and college recruiting advice, head to PatrickJonesBaseball.com slash develop, put your name and first put your first name and email in. Ladies and gentlemen, here is now my episode with Paul Reddick. All right, we are now live with Paul Reddick. Paul, thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Pumped to be here. So I've been I've been following you for a while now. Uh, you know, you put out a lot of content, a lot of really good content. You do a little bit. It seems like. You do some pitching, hitting, recruiting, everything. Um, but I also saw that you uh, ran the Yogi Berra Museum. Can you, yeah. can you explain a little bit more about that? I, I'm intrigued because I haven't actually heard of that. Yeah, so I didn't run the museum. I, I worked there. And so I was, his, I was the resident speaker at his museum for 15 years, and I was also the camp director. So as resident speaker, uh, his museum is great, by the way. It's on the campus of Montclair State uh, University in New Jersey. So if you're ever in New York, it's, it's a quick ride from New York and it's a probably less than a one hour kind of walk through. I mean, you'd really have to work to spend, but it's, it's amazing. It's just an amazing, it, it, you don't even have to be really into baseball to uh, Yogi was like this, uh, you know, just this timeline of like the greatest generation, you know, it's, it's really, it's really amazing. And so, as, so uh, all kinds of groups would come to the museum. So I, I would speak probably two to three times a week I'd, I'd have like the Boy Scout Troop 44, you know, from Bloomfield, New Jersey on Monday. I'd have the, uh, you know, the, the Association of Physical Therapists on Wednesday. And then I'd have like the executive committee of, you know, whatever company in there to do their team meeting. And I was kind of the guy like, go in there and talk to them. And uh, so I probably gave over a thousand speeches in, in that wow. uh, museum. And then we, off, we did a ton of sportsmanship and bullying programs. I, I don't even know. It would be it would probably, so probably at least twice a week for 15 years, you know, um, and, and his camp was an amazing camp. We were, uh, we were, we were, um, uh, an all scholarship camp. And so we went out and we went to underserved communities in New Jersey and brought kids in and kids who had never played baseball before, didn't even have a glove, 
didn't didn't do anything. And one of the things that I always believe is, you know, there's there's obviously, you know, we want to create opportunities in baseball for everyone. And one of the one of the one of the uh, kind of arguments against that is that, well, people, you know, there, there are certain communities that aren't interested in baseball. That is just not true. It is absolutely not true because I, by Thursday, Friday of that camp, those kids were playing baseball. You know what I mean? It, they were enjoying it and they were loving it. So, um, you know, for me, for that time period, uh, it was, it was an amazing, uh, amazing journey, you know, to, to, to watch that. And, and, uh, and Yogi was just, you know, I, I'll talk, I could talk about him, you know, all day long, but he, he was, uh, exactly who you think he is and, and probably a little bit better. He was just the most humble person you could ever imagine. So unassuming. He was almost so um, he was almost in, in his mind, he was so kind of nobody that he was somebody, you know, he didn't think of himself in any way. And that was like, it was like a presence to that. But, and also I probably got to meet every living hall of famer uh, during that time because, you know, he would have fundraisers and events throughout the year, golf outings. And so I got, and we would work, I would, you know, it's like an all hands on deck and there's lots, of, I got to spend a lot of like sitting in a room, you know, with, four hall of famers, like just say, Hey, just make sure they need any, if they need anything, get it for them. Um, I spent three hours of room in a room alone with Mariana Rivera once shooting oh, a commercial wow. there. Um, so there was just, uh, some things where I would just kind of, I would kind of go like, this is really weird. You yeah. know, this is really, really weird. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like, what do I ask Joe Morgan? Yeah. You know, and, and like, you ever see the Chris Farley, uh, you know, from uh, Saturday night live where it's like, do you remember that time uh -huh. you were with the reds? <laughs> That was awesome. Yeah. While you were doing this, were you also coaching too? Yes. So any baseball coach, when they give you their resume, it sounds like they've had nine careers, right? <laughs> because you have to piece together a lot of things to, to make a living in baseball. So I would say during that 15 year period, I was running an offline instruction business. Um, I was scouting. Um, I was speaking. And then we were building, you know, what became uh, baseball education center. It started October in October of 2000. So this October would be 22 years since we put up our first website. Wow. And so, um, Congratulations, yeah, first all that, of all, that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's just staying alive. There's really, yeah, there's, yeah, <laughs> haven't died. <laughs> um, but, uh, but so, um, yeah, you know, it's, and, um, I, I did the whole thing, you know, the 18 hour, 19 hour days and, and, uh, didn't think a thing of it. You know, didn't didn't think it was I'm on the grind or I'm on the hustle or anything like that. It was I just you know, there was always a part of me that's like um, I, I remember giving my first baseball lesson and uh, a guy that I had coached his son in the summertime towards the end of the summer said, hey, like, do you give lessons? And I was like, yeah, of course I give lessons. I'd never given a lesson in my life. And uh, he's like, what do you charge? And I was like. Fifteen dollars an hour. And I said that like you know, get your wallet out. You know, you're not, you're like, this is, and uh, I remember getting back in the car. I'd probably, I'd showed up like a half hour early to like, you know, uh, uh, wet down the mound and tamp it and stuff like that. And I probably threw this kid. I probably hurt his arm. Like I threw him for like an hour and 20 minutes, you know, but I got in the car um, and uh, I thought, wow, is there an opportunity that I could, I knew I was going to be a coach. I could certainly tell you that the moment that kind of popped for me was a few years earlier, but uh, the thought that, I could actually make a living uh, doing this um, and not being like a combination of like a teacher or, you know, a coach or something like that. 
Um, I, I did every you know, to contain myself from like, you know, screaming. Um, yeah, it was just, I, I don't know if that answered your question. But. No, yeah. No, what would yeah. you give yourself, like, what advice would you give yourself 20 years ago? So it's probably the, it's the advice that I would give any coach who's going out to do anything today. So it's probably the same advice. Um, I think there's so many coaches, so many great, brilliant coaches who could deliver great programs, great services, great instruction, great camp, could have a more, a more positive impact and influence on the game. And they don't because they're worried about what their peers might think or say or tweet. And um, it's, it's a thing, it's a thing. But what, what I try and um, remind coaches, and I would have probably reminded myself back then, is that those are not the people you serve. Those are not going to be your clients. Um, so you're letting, a, you're letting your, your, what you could deliver as a great baseball, you know, whatever they want to have, you know, whatever they're producing, they, they don't have that happen because they're worried about what someone who will never invest a single cent. And I'll tell you, the biggest thing is qualifications. People will cut themselves before anybody even has a chance to cut them. So I hear a lot from coaches who say, well, you know, so-and-so did that. Or there's already so many hitting books. You know, can you imagine, like, do you, do you think like Led Zeppelin, when they were forming the group, so like, ah, you know, there's the who. The who's are, you know, I, I said, what's every rock band? There's a singer, guitarist, bass player, drums, whatever, keyboard. That's every band like ever. But it's not the band. It's not the thing. It's the sounds that you make. And so Led Zeppelin made different sounds in the who. The who made different sounds in the Beatles. And, um, and so as a coach, what I encourage people is that, you know, it's, it, it's not the thing. It's not hitting. It's the sounds you make. It's, it's, and that's what people want to listen to, you know, and every, and you'd be amazed that, um, yeah, I'm probably living proof, right? I do not have it in, in crazy baseball. I didn't start with a crazy baseball resume, um, that there are just people that however the game runs through you as a coach, however, it makes you come alive. Um, there's probably someone that the things you say, the products, services you create will make them come alive too. And so that would be the advice is to, uh, to spend less time worrying about what maybe your peers might think or the judgments of, of, of them. I think that's the same advice, even for players too, right? I think everyone, I think as humans, yeah. the greatest fear is what someone else may think of you. I had Michael Gervais on my podcast. I don't know if you know who that is, Dr. Gervais, but um, he was one of the, he was one of the guys who, you know, originally was saying that, you know, the greatest fear amongst all people these days is what someone else may think of them. And so it's kind of yeah. understanding that from like a player's perspective, coaches really just as human beings. So it's interesting that you bring that up from a coaching standpoint. So I think that's what the, the common fear is amongst all people in general. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, like today's generation, I think, um, you know, it's, it's, we have this little distortion of social media. You know, you log on to social media and the, the kids that I work with, you know, everybody's going to Vanderbilt, everybody throws 98. And everybody's got an NIL deal. Um, and they've already pre-announced that next year they're entering the portal. <laughs> you know, and so it's it's you know, it's it's there's a little bit of a distortion of I think um, you know, maybe what your peers are up to or um so uh yeah, it's it's a thing for sure. What do you what what's your take on social media and recruiting and you know what what advice would you give to kids out there who are trying to get recruited? 
Yeah. So personally, I, I despise social media and every single thing it stands for. I hate it. I can't stand it. I, I think it's I think it's kind of in a way ruining lives. In, in the same breath, I do know that this is this is where we are, right? This is reality. Um, and I think there's a weird situation. I'm 48, so I think maybe anyone 40 or over is in a weird place because we lived half our life with it, half our life without it. We kind of see that it doesn't, it's not real, but to the player, it's real. You know, that's that's the real world. And whether we see that or not, that's their, you know, um, reality of it. Um, you know, recruiting in the last few weeks has changed quite dramatically. You know, when you, you see the, the players that are entering the transfer portal now um, is just like, uh, you know, when you have the best freshman in the country enter the transfer portal, um, who would have thought two, three years ago, we would have been saying that a player that, that got a chance to go play at Vanderbilt would enter the transfer portal. Um, but that's all happening. So the thing that I try and get kids to understand with recruiting is not to think about what I've got, right? But look at it from the coach's standpoint. What do they get? You know, so I, I, one of the first things I do when I work with families on it is I said, let's, let's look at, we're essentially marketing yourself, right? And, you know, it's not, it's not the best term to use for human beings, but you're marketing yourself to this college coach. So in order to understand that, you have to have, you have to look at who you're sending that message to. So let's, let's take today, right? So what is today, June, whatever it is, 29th. Um, 29th. So Let's you and I go through, what do you think a college coach is doing today on Wednesday, June 29th, 2022? You know, I. He's probably, I mean, on his way, let's see, it's Wednesday. A lot of tournaments these days start on Wednesdays. So I would say he's yep. probably on his way to a tournament or probably actually already watching a game right now. It's 10, 15 in the morning. So he's probably already watching a game. Yeah. So he may have driven out last night. Yep. Right. He may have left his family last night driven out to stay in a hotel or flew out, maybe. Um, he probably has uh, hundreds of emails in his inbox from uh, from all kinds of players. We did our survey of just the coaches that you know we're in contact with. The average is 12 to 50 emails. Nobody said less than 12, and the most was 50 emails per day from high school players. And and so, you know, he's traveling, he's away from his family. Um, then, then that's the recruiting side, the family side. Now there's like the whole administrative side of running a baseball program, which I'm sure, you know, right. Is, is, is not easy. It's, it's a lot of moving parts, especially today. There's paperwork and NCAA, uh, you know, um, regulations and, and then the stuff of the university, right. That his department would require and stuff like that. There's managing his staff and his team. And, you know, three weeks ago, we all woke up to see that the player from NC state. Um, enter the portal, every college coach in the country just put on the top of their to-do list that they now have to go re-recruit their team. So, and this guy now is watching a game right now, right? He might be driving later on tonight, eating a Big Mac, steer, you know, doing the steering wheel with his knee, you know, as he's, you know, looking at his phone and there's your email, <laughs> you, know, yeah. Yeah. you know, so, so there, you know, in, in communicating to a coach, so that's understanding the life of the coach. Now let's, well, let's look at the, the job of the coach. The top line of every coach's um, job description is win. It's it. No matter what they say. Like I love, I, I love when coaches say the right things and they say it's about raising great men and, and you know, mentoring. And it's like, well, you you're, you're seem to be interested in mentoring a lot of kids who throw hard. 
Right. You know, you're not really interested in throwing <laughs> mentoring a kid to throw 72, you know? And so there's a, there's a political correctness that I think for college coaches, I think is going to backfire on them. Um, because now a lot of the moves that they make and a lot of the things people are transferring, they're going to, they're going to say things that maybe they couldn't say before out of fear uh, for, you know, maybe that affecting their playing time and stuff like that. So, um, so now a, a coach is, um, you know, let's, let's, his job is to win games. Now, underneath that, probably 1B is to run a representative program, maintain GPA levels, you know, community involvement, campus presence, stuff like that. But, you know, it's, you don't get to 1B without 1A. And so, you know, I always, I always say like Bobby Knight, nobody ever thought Bobby Knight was anything other than a lunatic, right? right. But it didn't become a problem until he was like 11 and 17 one year, right? You know, <laughs> now he's like, ah, we can't, this guy's out of control. We didn't think he was out of control when he hurled that, right? that chair yeah. across, the, across the gym. <laughs> um, so a coach has got to win. Now, um, and he does that with runs and outs. Can you, can you score runs? Help me score runs. Can you help me get outs? Now, to understand, go one level deeper, is now let's understand um, why he needs to win. So um, as I'm sitting here, um, I, I'm in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, and I, so I don't, I don't know the coach at Princeton at all. Um, but I live in a town called Shrewsbury, which is right by Monmouth University, about an hour away, our offices. And, um, in New Jersey, there's nine division one schools, I believe. So let's say I'm the coach of any one of those schools and I lose my job. Th there isn't a division one program that's like right next door in the next town over or in the same town. Um, and there probably isn't one that's not a pretty significant drive. And that's assuming that they're open, that those jobs are open, right? There's only nine of them. So if a college coach loses his job, the odds are he's probably gonna have to move. And you know who is not a fan of that is Mrs. Head Coach, who has kids in school and wants to, you know, put down stakes and, and build a family and, and stay stable because that's what's best for the kids. And now bear in mind that if the coach loses a job and he gets another job, which isn't an easy task, he just lost his last job. He's not going to, he's not going to losing that job because he didn't win to a cushy job with lots of budget. He's probably going to probably taking a step down, which means he's probably going to have to work. He's already away from home a lot. So when parents ask me all the time, won't, won't a coach take a chance on a kid? It's not that they don't want to. It's just that they it's get a good understanding of what they're putting on the line right? The roster spot, that's his most prized coveted possession of those roster spots. That's how he gets outs and, and runs to win baseball games that could keep him employed and keep his family secure and, and his job security. And so you're dealing with his mortgage, his family, his kid's college tuition, his kid's stability of life. Once, once you understand all that, so much of the recruiting game becomes so silly, doesn't it? Like once you look at the life of a college coach, um, it becomes silly. So what I try and get kids to understand is um, I, 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 what starts the recruiting process is you have to be good enough to play there. That's the only thing that starts. The kid, I, he could think you're a great kid, Eagle Scout, you're a volunteer and all kinds yeah. of things to help. Everyone's a great kid. Yeah. <laughs> right. You have to be good enough to play there. So there's only one thing that starts the recruiting process, but there's millions that stop it. And so that's, you know, to me, that that's an interesting, um, you know, insight for players to have. And so now, now we look at what would start the recruiting process. 
So now we'll look at rosters. We'll look at who the coach has recruited from where he's recruited. What are, who are the commits? That's not science, but it gives you a feel, you know, it gives you a feel. And then, um, you know, from there, now it's like, how can we present ourselves as uh, runs or outs or wins to a college coach? Not just a nice kid who's good at baseball and loves baseball. Right. And so, um, and, and, and that coach has an evaluation process. You know, that coach on, so, um, yeah, I mean, we take kids through kind of a process of selecting, of, of it's like kind of like a, not, not really a re regression analysis, more of an elimination process to get down to a certain number of schools. And to understand that the process we went through, that coach is also sorting, right? That coach is also sorting on his side. So what we're hoping to do is we get down to five, six schools that are what we call five-star schools. And I'd be happy to go into any more detail of that. But understand that if, if it's a five-star school for you, it should also, you should be a five-star recruit for the coach. If not, you didn't do your process right. You know, there's a, there's a disconnect in that, in that process. So, um, uh, so that's, that's how I would, I, I start with, let's get an understanding of what we're actually doing and who we're actually trying to convince to give us an opportunity. Yeah. I think you brought up some really good points that I want to <laughs> follow up on. I was talking to a coach a couple of weeks ago and, and about recruiting and he was saying, you know, he's, he's looking for, for players, position players, more specifically, we're talking about guys who can get to second base on their own. So whether that's power, whether that's their, you know, their legs, just guys who can get to second base on their own. So if they can't get to second base on their own and, you know, he's not interested. And what I keep hearing time and time again, we're looking for guys who can play up the middle. I keep hearing that time and time again from coaches, just because if you can yeah. play up the middle, you can, they can become a corner guy or whatever. And so if you're only a corner guy, you, you have to rake, right? You have to mash. How do you, now, how yeah. do you go about, trying to educate players and kind of getting them off of the, the D one or bust mentality, because let's face it, that's, that is a real thing. I, I've, I've had players that I work with who it's, it's hard, it's hard to get them out of that. And I think social media does play a huge role in that. I know earlier you said you, you hated social media. I was saying this not that long ago, social media is a great tool, right? It is. It's great. Yeah. But I think it's one of the worst things to happen to society too. Um, oh, just, yeah. without a doubt, I mean, <laughs> it, it really is. It's called, it's cause, well, we, that's another topic, but, um, how do you go, how do you go about helping, helping players realize that like, Hey, it, if, if you love playing baseball, the, the school, the Jersey, the accolade, all that stuff shouldn't be number one. How is, how do you help them? Or is that something that you do have to go through with them? Yeah. So, so, um, on the D1 thing, it depends on where they are, you know? So if I have a kid who's like, uh, let's say like now, you know, like let's say I have a kid who's a sophomore now, um, it, it, he should have a pretty good idea right now. Like he, he should have, somebody should have contacted him indirectly, you know, third party, whatever, like it, it, he should have a really good idea. If I have a kid who's a junior now, who's still talking about D1, then I have to just have a, grown up conversation with them. Um, I'm not saying it's not possible, but it's probably not likely. And, mm -hmm. and if it's, and even if it is possible, it's like, I hate, I hate, I always feel like, you know, sometimes I'm talking to Rudy, you know, like, do I want to really, you know, upset this, you know, stop this kid from trying, but um, you know, uh, th that's just the reality of it is that the way recruiting goes, the way commits go and all that stuff, it, it, it's, it's, it, that's just the way it is. So if it's early in the process, I don't even deal with it. 
like if I'm dealing with a kid who's a freshman or uh, we don't, we don't really work with players that are, that are, that are that young or below, but we'll talk to the parents, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to them um, just for free. And, and so, you know, I, I just, I'd say that will, that will take care of itself. But the one thing I want, I, I look at is I'm looking, and I think college coaches are looking too. They're looking for a player who's going to come on campus and thrive. And so um, my thing is, I'm really not interested in baseball um, for, as a kid, as a, as a baseball player. I'm interested in them having a great life. And because I'm a baseball coach, that's where I can, you know, that's where I, I can't help them write their resumes or do other things. So part of a great life is I can help you during this time and, and hopefully give you, use baseball as this great vehicle we talk about, right? This great uh, metaphor for life. So, so here are the five we lay out is number one is geographic. Where are you going to live? Number two is um, uh, education. What are you going to study? Number three is social. Do you want 4,000? Do you want 40,000? Do you want country? Do you want city? Like 4,000 students. Um, fourth is financial. Last is baseball. Mm. Now, the kids who enter this process, five through one, take baseball and try and make everything fit, um, they're home in a year or two. And now it might be, you know, it might be a year pretty consistently. They're gone because they're taking baseball based on this is a great place to play baseball. And they're just kind of trying to squeeze everybody in or squeeze all the other things in. So if I give you, I don't know what a, who a designer is. Um, uh, I, I don't know who's a designer, like a fashion designer. Uh, I just think. Of, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So if I gave you like fine leather Versace thousand dollar ultra best shoes um and i and they were like eight and a half you know they're still fine leather they're still designer but they don't fit and they don't fit and so a lot of times guys are trying to stuff their shoe into this designer brand the, the players that go one through five they get the best of everything they have a good college experience they study what they want to study they, they're with kids they're around kids that, um, you know, a culture that, that they like, and they're playing great baseball. Now, when a kid gets in that situation, and it's a distinction I try and help the kids make is, you know, there's what you think about your college experience, right, when before you're there, right? And then, then there's like the day-to-day -day experience of it. And those are two different things. Because the day-to-day -day experience of it is how you're going to experience college. And you're going to experience in this, in this order. The reason I start with those first three is you're going to spend 100% of your time living where you live. You're going to spend 40 hours a week studying. You're going to spend 100% of your time being with the people in the environment and the culture that you're going to live in. If those three things are right, you know, obviously in the finances, that's just a personal thing, whatever yeah. decisions family make. But if, if in order for you to thrive, if you have all five of those things lined up, or maybe like four of those things lined up, you will thrive. And a, and a college coach, that's what they want. So if you think about, like, let's say, you know, let's say uh, we, we bump into like the Harvard coach. And um, we say, hey, coach, you know, we have a kid who's 4.0, 1500 SATs, uh, six foot one, throws 90, uh, wants to live in the Northeast, has family there, wants a school, you know, high academic school, smaller, you know, environment, more balanced, focused, um, and his family can talk, they prepare, they're ready. His next question would be, can I meet him? Mm -hmm. And I tell my kids, it's like, you want that to be like, yeah, that's me. I'm him. 
Yeah. You know? <laughs> because if, so if you do that five-star process right, you should be a dream come true for him too. And so that, when I, when I take the kids through this and they go, they start with D1 dreams, but then they end up in a D2, D3, wherever, and they're thriving and they're playing great baseball. They don't, they could care less what's going on at Mississippi State or LSU or Vanderbilt. And, and I think one of the, I think also one of the disconnections too, is that, that, that D2 or D3 baseball isn't great. I mean, here in New Jersey, we have, I think it's still called New Jersey Athletic Conference. They're called the NJAC. It's Kane, William Patterson, um, uh, Montclair State. These are teams that have won national championships. Like this is, it's division three. Go, go watch one of these games. This is fierce baseball with kids that are hungry and kids get drafted out of these schools every year. You know, so, so from that, I think, um, I, I, you know, for, for that D1 thing is I, I, I generally don't work with someone who's a little, I call it delusional recruiting syndrome, you know, that, cause they're just going to make bad decisions. They're going to make bad decisions, you know, and, and I will, I will have a, a hard, but an honest conversation with the parent. I'm going to say, look, I'm just, look, if you're hiring me to kind of be the Sherpa, then you're going to go up the hill the way I'm telling you to go up the hill. Now, if you want to go that way, then go ahead. But I'm going to stay here because I know what happens when you go that way. Yeah. And so that's, I, I you know, I, I tend to, I don't get many of those. Um, and, and, and I, I don't know percentages, but you know, I'm able to kind of at least talk some sense into people and then to give them like the, like, let's look at the scoreboard. You're a junior and you haven't been contacted by a single division one school. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. 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 And so one of the, one of the tough parts though, I'll, I always tell kids is that the most valuable commodity in the recruiting process is time because you get to do it once. There's no learning curve. You don't get to learn and go back through it again. And sometimes a school showing a little bit of interest, right? Especially early can be so distracting. So I go, I speak a lot. If I were, if I were speaking to, um, you know, kids like high school kids, I said, look, you, we all know if, if the coach of like Ole Miss now, right. Or Vanderbilt saw you at a, at a tournament and said, Hey, I like what I saw out there. And that's all he said. We all know tomorrow an Amazon package will be delivered with every piece of clothing, Vanderbilt head to toe, right? And you'd be telling, you'd change your profile picture and, but you know, you know, they're in, you know, it's not verbal yet, but moving in that direction. Yeah. And parents would be telling so, everybody. Right, right. Got all interest. Got all interest. We're talking, we're talking. And um, so that could be really distracting. It's like the cool kids coming to ask you to sit at their table at lunch. You'll change the way you talk, the way you dress. And, and sometimes that burns a lot of valuable time, you know, where, where some, a coach early on might see some potential in you. But again, what starts the recruiting process is one thing. What ends it could be a million things. So he may have saw you have a good game out there. And then he went and watched again or he followed you. And so like, if, if you haven't heard anything, you know, most of those coaches, if they see something they like, especially now, they're like, you know, swarming. You, you, they're going to contact your coach or they're going to do someone's going to help you further that discussion. If there's real interest. There. What's your take on, on players committing early, like before their junior year to a, to a school. Um, so I'll speak honestly with you just out of respect to the players and obviously respect to you and your podcast, Patrick, I think it's horrible. I think it's uh, I think the college coaches need to stop. I think um, it is a way the college coach knows they can break that commitment, right? And they know they do. So I've, 
I haven't been able to really find science or to validate the stat, but um, I've heard that one out of four commits are on a roster sophomore year. So I, I don't know if that was across baseball, across all sports or whatever. So I don't know. But wait, wait, one out, four, one out of four. What can you say that again? One out of four were on a one roster. One out of four commits were on a roster sophomore. Oh, year. so the other yeah. three never even made it. Or left. Or left. Or left. Okay. Yeah. So again, I don't know if that's across all sports or so don't, that's not, I'm just quoting, but let's say that's half wrong. Let's say half. That's a lot. Yeah. And I worry about short circuiting, short circuiting education. So it, it's made me more common in the last three weeks. But if we were having this conversation a month ago, I would say, how, how, you know, let's say a 16 year old kid is going to decommit. Well, how many times does a kid decommit from a school? Never. Right. right. But how many times does a college coach cut kids? All the time, every year, right? Touch kids like So for a college coach to break a commitment, it's it's easy. They're, it's part of their job. They're grownups, they're adults. For a 16 or 17-year-old to now go back and break his commitment is a really hard thing. And college coaches know that. They know that there's a little bit of like, hey, you could kind of, you know, it's like wink wink, you could damage your reputation if you break this commitment. I think that's all changed now. But um, so it there's no benefit for the player to do it. Um, the the negative side effects for the player are they stop their recruiting process. This coach gets to kind of throw a fence up around this kid. It kind of scares off some other coaches who might be recruiting. That may have changed too now in the last few weeks. Now, that From we what have, I've heard, it has. It's the wild, wild west is what I was told. It is the wild, wild west, yes. Like, I mean, to think, when do you think, you know, like, I mean, LSU taking players from Vanderbilt and NC State, like, if those guys are going to do it to each other, I mean, imagine what they're going to do with smaller schools. Yeah, they're going to pick off. I have a lot of theories about that as well, what's going to happen in college baseball, but um, so, so I don't think there's, there's no advantage. It's not a legally binding contract. So what's the advantage of doing it other than the social equity of saying you've committed. And so I think it's a dangerous distraction for players. So, so if you have a, if you had a son who was a very good player, freshman, sophomore, a couple of schools, very interested, end up offering him, you would say, we're not doing that right now. Well, first of all, so I'm going to speak for me. Okay. If a coach is asking my son before junior January or September 1st of his junior year to commit to that school, that coach is indirectly breaking the rules. That is not a man that I am going to send my kid to go be with for four years because that man, that coach is going to be my son's father by proxy for those four years. It's probably going to be the second most important male role model in his life. So if someone's going to start our relationship by breaking the rules, I have no interest in continuing a relationship with that man. So that's number one. So number one, I would say to that coach, coach, when you can officially make a commitment to my son, then we, you know, if let's say it's a done deal, my son wants to go there. I would say, coach, when at the first opportunity, we can make an official commitment, then we'll do that. But before that, I'm not going to go through third party people. And then you, you get to a travel coach and that travel coach tells you, Hey, you should call them. And they're just working around the rules because that door will shut. There will be a rule. I mean, there's going to be a lot of regulation, right? Coming in the next couple of years, you can imagine. So those rules are going to change. I don't, I would, no, not, yeah. look, I don't judge what anybody does in their house, but that's not going to happen in my house. Mm. And in full disclosure, my sons don't play baseball. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, from from the get go. Yeah. From the get go, I wanted my sons to have their own life and their own interests. And uh, they just weren't interested in baseball. They were interested in other activities and sports, which has been great. Yeah, it's so, you know, the last couple of weeks, you know, you talked about how some of the changes the last couple of weeks, I mean, there's been 
there's now some serious money. You know, everyone thinks that baseball doesn't have, you know, a lot of money revenue, but at some of these big schools, I mean, I'm hearing some of these guys getting anywhere from 125 to $250,000 deals. Uh, you know, there's some, some coaches who I've heard will fly to different States to meet with the player and to kind of get them in the, in the portal and, and, you know, have an offer ready for them. I've heard agents at some schools, are representing some players at some mid-major schools saying, hey, if we can get you in the portal, so-and-so in the Power Five is going to want you. So, I mean, and I've talked to a lot of college coaches who now, instead of just recruiting high school players in the summertime, they're having to go to college summer leagues yeah. because of the transfer portal. So it's there's there's so many different things that are, that are going on that – um, now you said you have your own theories on what's going to happen in the next couple of years. I'm, I'm curious as to what, what those are. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think there's going to be some regulation coming in, right? I think the NCAA probably let out too much slack. They're probably going to have to pull that in a little bit on the NIL deals because you can't have someone be able to, you know, um, uh, take payment without giving them also the right to representation. And so that's, that's a, that's America, right? We can't go, go beyond that. So they need to have that. And, and I don't blame the kids one bit. I don't like it. I don't like it, but look, anybody that's casting moral judgment on these kids, I would ask them, let me ask you if someone's going to let, you know, give you $250,000 to go do the exact same job you're doing. Let's see the moral. Right. You know, and you currently have zero, you zero dollars in your bank account. Right, right, right. Maybe, maybe less, maybe yeah, negative, right. right? On credit <laughs> You're cards, in right? debt. And yeah. And, and you don't know what your future holds, right? We don't, you don't know what your future holds. I mean, I always, I remember talking with my friend when it first happened. I said, could you imagine being like the quarterback of like Michigan or something? You walk out and there's a hundred thousand people there. And like, you're the one getting your head knocked in, you know, and you're like, oh, I wonder if everybody here paid $10. That's a million. And you know, they paid more than that. Right. So right. Uh, I get it. I don't like it, but I get it. So here's what I think is going to happen in college baseball. Um, just, just speaking on baseball here in New Jersey, um, you know, uh, my mom was a professor at Seton Hall University. So I kind of grew up on that campus. I took batting practice with, I have a really bizarre pedigree of baseball uh, coming up in, in the people I've been able to work with. But um, I took batting practice with Craig Biggio, Mo Vaughn. Oh, I, I thought every kid, yeah, my brother was the catcher after Craig Biggio. Um, I thought every kid got to do that. I, I had no idea it was special or unique. And, and, and obviously we had no idea that these weren't other, just these were just students. You know, these were my mother's students. You know, they weren't anything. Um, you know, to me, they were, you know, gods, but we didn't know they were going to want to be MVP and the Hall of Famer, stuff like that. So, let, you know, take Seton Hall University, Rutgers University. Um, every couple of years, five years, six years, they have a, a guy drafted in the first round, right? They probably had nine or 10 first round draft picks. So take a player, um, you know, like, like Craig Biggio, I remember very clearly, like after his sophomore year, it was very clear that this was a special, unique player that was going to go on to do great things. I remember them talking to him about him like that because we were so excited about it. So um, I, I don't know where he was coming out of high school, but obviously he wasn't like recruited by bigger schools, Miami and, and Mississippi State and all that. Or maybe he was, I don't know. But um, now, th so the, the idea would be, wow, we've got this, this kid who's going to, we're going to, you know, be able to have for three, three years or four years, that's gone because he's gone now. He's gone. He's, he's getting a better deal to go to Miami, LSU, Florida state. He's getting a better deal. He's leaving. So 
I think what's going to happen is you're going to see that these these schools, these kind of mid-major schools that are are good baseball schools, historically good, solid baseball schools, you know, um, at any given point could have a team in the top 20, top, you know, and maybe they catch a good one in the top 10 um, are going to be almost feeder systems. They're going to be development systems and say, hey, you, you go to school here for a year, you develop a little bit, maybe two years, we'll pluck you out of the portal, give you a couple hundred grand and give you a better deal. So now, now you're the coach of those teams, those mid-major teams. All right. Like now, like, what are we doing here now? So that might change the way they recruit. Um, and uh, so, um, and then also, if you think about, let, let's say you're the 10th pitcher on, you know, Vanderbilt and you kind of see the writing on the wall um, that you're maybe not going to be a weekend starter or, or whatever. And now with the draft being shortened to 20 rounds, right? So it wouldn't have been uncommon to have a pitcher with maybe not so many innings at Vanderbilt get plucked in the 25th, 26th, right? Just because they're Vanderbilt. So now that kid is like, wow, I'm going to have to, I got to pitch. I got to get into, I got to get somewhere where I can pitch. If I'm going to, if I'm going to, you know, get myself into the top 20 rounds. So now that kid might leave Vanderbilt and go to Rutgers where he might be a number one. So it's a very weird dynamic. Um, so what I think would, I, this is just me theory. I think it's going to be great for college baseball because I think there's going to be talent that's going to be spread you know, it's going to be spread out more. It's not going to be, so we're before, you know, if you were the 10th, 10th pitcher of Vanderbilt, well, tough, get better, right? We're not going to let you go, or if you're going to transfer, you're going to sit out a year or whatever the rules were. Um, but now the kid can leave. And I, so I think two things will happen. I think it'll spread out. I think it'll make college baseball overall better. I think you have a lot of schools that maybe weren't serious or didn't even have programs start to become more serious and have programs. There's going to be more opportunity for kids to play. The cream is going to rise to the top. So I think, you know, when we watch the, you know, we watch basketball of like Duke and Kentucky and these schools, right? We generally see the very best of right. that. So that wasn't the case now. Like you said, there's you know, like a guy like Craig Biggio, who's one of, you know, uh, first round draft pick. I think, I don't know, 15th, he was picked or something like that. Well, he should be playing for Miami. He has the talent and the skill level to play for Miami. So I think you're going to see that level of college baseball really get great, like really great. Uh, for fans, I think it's going to be great. And then I think there's going to be a, a separation. I think it's, I think there'll be two tournaments and that might be years, but I, I just think there's going to be people that are going to play in that world, maybe power five or, or people will opt in to say, we're going to play, we're going to do NIL deals, or, or we're not going to take NI players who are taking NIL deals. I think there'll be maybe some of that. I don't know how legal that is, but, um, and then I, I think, but I think that's great, right? Like why shouldn't there be a mid-major tournament you know so i know a lot you, of you, you like the nil deals i know i don't i don't like it because i think i i don't think i well look there's the law right there's there's what the law is you know it's one of the silliest arguments about you know when, when guys complain about title nine like title nine is not like a, a thing that was you know to hurt it's the law it's a law it just doesn't affect college baseball right <laughs> yeah. law that affects yeah. Yeah. so um uh, I, I, I see it from a legal standpoint, um, and I would encourage players to take as much money as you can possibly get. But no, I don't like it from a standpoint. I think it's I think the people that here's my fear. Um, who's going to coach these teams now? Right. Who's going to coach these teams that are going to be wheeling and dealing with kids? And, and like just like remember the movie Blue Chips? Remember, like he didn't yeah. want to deal with happy. Right. Nick Nolte yeah. didn't want to deal with happy. But like happy now is necessary. Right. And so who's going to deal with happy? It's going to be some, you know, uh, I don't, I don't want to say a bad word, but some, you know, sleazy guy who's going to, 
run these programs. I don't think that's going to be good for business. And I think the thing that probably for people to pay attention to is that Jay Wright left Villanova. Uh, I can't think of a better job if you wanted cushy long-term security than Villanova. And he was like a, right, he, he's been successful. Um, I don't know much about basketball, but from what I heard, he had a good team coming back and he's 60 years old. He's got another 10, 15 years and he walked away from coaching. And I got to believe that. And there was another coach too, I think that walked away. Um, so I, I, and also I, I think the loyalty thing is going to be a real factor. Um, you, you had the pitching coach from the twins, leave the yep. twins in the middle of the season to go to LSU. Now, look, I, I don't judge anybody for making a decision for their family or the, for their future. I think everybody should make the best decision for them, but that's a first. That's a first. So there's a lot of things of like, Hey, am I hiring you? Am I bringing you to my school? Am I giving you a scholarship? My like. It's it's weird. It's weird. Yeah. it's really weird. Yeah, the the that West Johnson thing was interesting, but yeah, I mean, having coached in professional, I know you've been in professional baseball. I've been in professional baseball. Um, mm-hmm. I can tell you one thing: there's no loyalty in professional baseball for sure. So why I wasn't successful? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I think I heard that they doubled his salary uh, to bring him to, to. I guess again, it goes to show you there's some at the top dogs. There's a lot of money up there in college baseball. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't blame anyone. I don't yeah. judge anyone for it. I just, I just wonder how that's how, what's going to be the, um, what do they call that? Like in, pol- in politics when uh, like the boomer or not boomerang, what do they talk, like a snapback, you know I mean? What's going to be the reaction yeah. to that? You know, like, um, you know, is that, are there going to be more tightly bound contracts or are there going to be our scholarships? Well, and here's another thing I don't think people thought, think about too. It may affect the scholarship system because now you have a kid on a $600,000 NIL deal. I'm going to say, hey, look, I'm not covering your $20,000 tuition here too, mm. right? So now that might free up some scholarships. That could be, I don't know. I don't know. I think um, I would be, I would give anything to be a fly on the wall at wherever these people who decide this meet, <laughs> you know, to, to decide these things. And, and also glad I'm not one of them. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Paul, I, I want to change gears a little bit. I, I want to ask yeah. you, uh, you know, you've been, you're an entrepreneur, you, you've been owning your own business for a long time now. Um, I, I saw that, you know, you're completing your certificate of, of specialization, innovation and entrepreneurship with the Harvard Business School. I'm curious as to why you started doing that and, and kind of what you've learned so far. I mean, just as a distinction, it is not like a degree. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so, you know, once COVID hit, um, it was just, you know, uh, I, I went to college online. My mother was a professor. So um, I went to Seton Hall uh, for a short period of time and said, that's, that this isn't going to be for me. Um, I was not a great student. So the only reason I got into, uh, into, into Seton Hall was because of my mother. And that was just like for, I would, I was, I was going like in the summer and the winters and stuff like that. Like I, she had to kind of like I don't know. I don't want to say anything on this. It might get her in trouble, but, but whatever she favor she had to pull, certainly had to, had to pull them because I graduated second to last in my class at Seton Hall Prep. Now, Seton Hall Prep is a great school, national type school, but uh, the kid who graduated last didn't graduate. He stayed back. And so I had um, diagnosed after that, I have ADHD, uh, dyslexia, and dysgraphia. So dyslexia is, you know, obviously seeming backwards. And so dysgraphia is numbers, you know, the numbers get jumbled. And if I were to show you like my whiteboard, I, I still have a habit of going left to, um, I'm sorry, right to left when I make lists and stuff like that. It's the one that kind of run it. So um, 
you know, I was, I, I struggled in school and didn't know why. Um, so uh, when I just, you know, because my mom worked at a school, I got all kinds of you know, tuition breaks and stuff like that. And so my father basically said like, look, you know, your mother's worked her entire life for, for to provide this for you. And so you've got five options. You've got, uh, you know, Seton Hall, which you can go make the best of it and study and get your work your way into being like a matriculating student or Army, Navy, Air Force or Marines. Or you can pay, you can start paying to live here. And so I took the last one. So I went to go be a baseball coach. Um, and so I, uh, I, I, I got really lucky. I'd be happy to take you through any of that, but I, um, I went to be a baseball coach because that's just what I was meant to do. That's what I was born to do. Um, when I, I mean, do you want me to tell you the story? Like, you want me to yeah, like yeah, that? I want to hear it, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, and I'll come back to the Harvard thing. Um, I, basically, I went back to school because online learning became normal. I went to, I got my degree online back when I was lugging around like two things and a charger, the charger case was like, remember those old like, radar gun charger cases? This is what I was bringing my laptop computer for because I was doing online learning. I remember guys that I was coaching with going, what is the internet? I was like the world wide web. And they're like, what is the world wide web? And, but my mother was a professor. So she knew kind of like these things were, you know, coming. And so online learning was an easy thing for me. So I just decided to kind of go back and, and, uh, and do that. Um, so when I, when I started coaching, um, I was a, I was a failure as a player. You know, like I'm, I'm one of the, I'm one of the guys that's like, uh, yeah, like there's no injury, <laughs> no nothing. <laughs> I, my, my arm feels fine. You know, everything's fine. Um, but because I had these undiagnosed, um, you know, learning challenges, I couldn't stay eligible. And, uh, so I fell, I fell off the team every year. And so, um, you know, my senior year, I, I really didn't have a lot going for me. I wasn't really thinking about college because I, I just didn't know why I couldn't figure out schoolwork, even though I had great testing scores, like SATs and, and all the off the charts. And so I was like this enigma. And I hear like my mother's a professor and you know, it wasn't a great look. And so um, I didn't have much going for me, but I did like this girl. I did have a crush on this girl. And so I would, she was the uh, scorekeeper, the bookkeeper for the freshman baseball team at Roselle Catholic High School. And, uh, I would go show up at these games because I went to Catholic school and into an all boys school. I did not know how to talk to a girl. Right. So I just figured I'll just hang around long enough. Right. And uh, so the coach of that team is a guy named brother John, like a priest uh, brother. And uh, he's, he's like, what are you doing here? Like, you don't have a brother on this team or you don't go to the school. Like, what are you? I'm like, Oh, well I'm here. You know, I don't want to tell the girl's name, but I'm here to support her, you know, keeping the book. And uh, he was like, like when you have a religious person telling you that your game is, you know, needs some tightening, that's, that's not a great, not a great uh, sign. So he said to me, you want to help out with the team? Since you're going to be here, you want to help out with the team? And I was like, yeah. So I hit fungos, I threw batting practice. And then uh, a couple of days into it, there was a kid named Conrad. And he said, look, Conrad, if he doesn't start hitting, I'm going to replace him at first base. So he's got to start hitting like soon, next game. And so he goes, maybe you work with him. So I went over to the side and I, I just, I, I didn't even know what I was doing, right? I was just doing what I, I had seen um, and, and pumping him up and like Tony Robbins type stuff. And because, because my mom had bought me the set of Tony Robbins, like personal power, like, you know, like get your act together. And, um, and so this kid comes up the, the, the next game and I'm standing there and I'm telling you, like, my heart is like, I never felt like that in my life. I've never been that nervous. I didn't have many opportunities to, situations to be nervous as a player you know and just 
Um, I'd never been that nervous in my life. And this kid takes the first pitch and lines up the middle for a hit. And he comes around first base and, and, and he, I always say the dugout, but it was a bench. We were at Warren Eagle Park. And, and he points at me like, thank you, coach. And that was it. Like, it was like, uh, it, like my soul took its first breath. And I knew in that moment that uh, this is what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I do a lot of speaking to coaches. And I, I say, you know, that there's something that comes alive in us when we coach baseball, when we teach baseball, that doesn't come alive in us in, in any other form. Um, and it's and it's a very weird profession, right? Because we want to take this thing in us, this thing that comes alive in us. We want to uh, we want to transfer it to someone else. We want to give it away, right? And 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 we we become a, we come alive when we give it away. And then we want the person that we give it away to. We want to encourage them and motivate. We want them to go out and do better with it than we did. That's nuts, right? I, I, I don't know. Go to like an accounting, whatever Wall Street, and say, hey, do you want to teach the guy next to you everything you know? Encourage them, have him go be do better than you. No, right? And so, you know, we, we, we've chosen this profession and, and we've also chosen a game that sucks, right? Baseball sucks, right? It's every day, it beats you up, it hurts your feelings, it destroys your soul, it kills your spirit, it's unfair, it's unjust, you can't solve it. Um, the only day anybody feels good is opening day, right? Every day after that, everybody's a little beaten up and bruised or whatever, it doesn't feel good, but we want to do it because something comes alive in us when we do it that doesn't come alive in us at, at any other point. And we love it. I always joke, if you take away every team-issued, camp-issued piece of clothing from a coach, you have a blue suit and a pair of underwear from 1985. <laughs> and inside that blue suit, if you go in the inside pocket, you'll find the last seven mass cards of the, of the last seven people that died <laughs> in their life yeah. you know, and a pack of gum. But we love it. And it's something that it's, it's hard to explain. So that's when it happened for me. And, um, uh, and just, yeah, kind of never look back. And I, you know, I, I, I talk about the game of baseball a lot with coaches, like when I'm out speaking at conventions and stuff in that, how many times, how many times have you quit Patrick? Like you went home, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. Coaching? You quit. Yeah. Uh, I had never quit. Really? Oh, yeah. well, give it some time. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, not, not quit actually quit. I mean, like, you just went, oh, that's it. I can't do it. And you just, just on the oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, heck, I had to check myself. Um, yeah, I thought you meant like literally, like, I'm going to take a break here from coaching for a year or two. Um, no, I mean, I mean I, just I, like you went, you left the field and you said, I'm done. Yeah, yeah. Or, or I've actually had, um, a player before who actually not that long ago, who was like attitude wasn't there and, you know, yeah, just work ethic. And so I kind of was like, well, what do you want me to do with this player? I mean, his attitudes, it was, it was all everything that, you know, he couldn't do. Right. And so instead of, you know, and then I tried to check myself and I was like, well, this is your job, right. To actually coach him yeah. and to help him make him better. But to your point, yes, that, there was that, that moment where I was like, well, there's nothing else I can do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, so the only reason we do that is just so we can enjoy our dinner. Yeah. <laughs> we know we're not quitting. We're yeah. just self-soothing. We just want a couple hours to enjoy a hamburger or whatever and, and just enjoy that. But, you know, it, it's funny how you, you speak on players um, because I, I after that, when I started coaching, I, I got a job with another guy named Jack Burns who kind of gave me my first official coaching job. I, w I wouldn't say I was a coach of that team. I was more of a helper. And I had uh, Jack taught me. Uh, millions of things about the game but 
one of the things that stuck with me is I took a job coaching a fall team and fall team. It was different then. It was like a hodgepodge of kids from all different towns. It wasn't like an official thing. Like you played on weekends and practice maybe once or twice. And so I had like this hodgepodge of kids. I had like three first basemen, two catchers, you know, like I, I didn't have like a team that was assembled and I couldn't, I just like, they were, they were just bad. You know, I just couldn't get them together. And so I called Jack and said, look, can you come and help me? Because I don't know. I don't know how to, I, I can't do anything with them. Can you come down to practice? And I'm standing there with Jack. And I'm like in my youthful arrogance, just going, look at these kids can't catch. This kid doesn't know how to run the bases. I would do it. They're, they're hitting infield out to the other coach. And I'm like, look, he doesn't even know where to get. These kids don't know anything about the game. And they can't, they can't, they can't really feel their positions well. They can't, they don't have no uh, approach at the play. Blah, blah. And he said to me, he said in his accent, Jersey City accent, he said, if they could do those things, they wouldn't need you. And that's like one of those, like, oh, well, I wanted to go back the other way where I was feeling so self-righteous and important. Now right. I just, you know, yeah. now I feel like a jerk and I have a job to do, but that's something that's carried with me. So even players that are, are angry or what we would call uncoachable. So if you look at the word uncoachable, it's unable to coach. So when we say a kid's uncoachable, we should stop saying that because that's about us. We're, we're unable to coach it based on the present skills that we have. We can't handle this kid. Yeah, we're we're right? not we good. We're not a good enough coach to be able to yeah. influence him. Yeah. So I love angry players. I love frustrated players because you take an angry player, and there's a couple things there. Number one, the kid has a standard. He wants to play at a certain level. He thinks he can play at a certain level. He's not playing that way. Number two, he has incredible awareness because he's able to see that he's not playing at that standard, right? And it means something to him. He wouldn't get pissed off if it didn't mean anything to him. Right. So now there's a difference between behavior and emotion. Right. So there's behavior boundaries that need to be set. But to take that angry player and oftentimes when I get when I get them, I say, look, I, I, I understand that you want you have a standard for your play. You have a vision for the player that you can become. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, and you can see that you're not there. Right. Yeah. 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 And it means this means something to you. Right. Yeah. 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 Oftentimes I'm the first coach who's ever done who's ever who's ever articulated that. Right? Every other coach has said he's got a behavior problem. You know, so from that position of connecting with the player, I can now say, okay, look, let's, let's look at these things. But first we have to make a distinction between emotion and behavior. So you could be angry and pissed off all you want. You can't throw a helmet. Mm -hmm. You can't pop off at an umpire as we saw in college world series, right? Or not the college world series. Well, I have a lot to say about that too, but, um, <laughs> but you know, we saw that, yeah, you can't, you can't turn around and, and, uh, and give the umpire a mouthful, um, you know, so so I, I love I love those those challenges that I think because uh, it's it's something that I think the current state of baseball now there's not a lot of people who either have the time or the ability to really help a player like that. Yeah, 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 it, and it's kind of the art of coaching, right? I mean, it is it, you know it really, and we all we always talk about you know mechanics and all this little stuff online, which is great, and uh, obviously that's very important too, right? I mean, you look at big leaguers; they don't have they're not bad movers, right? They move well. But I think when you talk about yeah. you know, influencing someone's life and, and, you know, helping them on the field, off the field, things like that, that's, you know, essentially what we're talking about right here, which I thought I really like the emotion versus behavior that you just referenced there. I think that's very well put. Yeah. Well, um, I learned that from Jack Burns. Oh, that really? Was, okay. that, yeah. yeah. Jack was like, you could sit at the end of the bench. You could be as mad, mad and angry as you want. <laughs> and most I, of the times uh, you're telling kids, don't do it. 
you know, stuff that down. I, I saw, good. I saw that you've, you've, you know, you've been a speaker, like you mentioned before, you, you speak to a lot of, you know, college programs, baseball conferences. Yeah. I also saw that you've actually spoken to the FBI. And so I'm intrigued. What, yeah, <laughs> please tell me that story. Uh, one, um, let me see how I'm going to say this. Let's just say I know a guy. Okay. Um, who was an FBI <laughs> agent. An FBI agent. I don't, I don't know what his status is, but, uh, um, uh, and, you know, asked me to come in and talk to the, to uh, his team. And I, I won't, I, I don't know what I can say or not say, but it was, it was a, a team that was doing some pretty intense things. And I walked into one of those rooms, like with all the screens on the wall. And I went, Oh, and he laughed, the guy laughed, but um, yeah. Uh, uh, just a tough crowd. Yeah. <laughs> What were you trying to, I mean, what were you trying to do? What was your goal heading in there? Yeah. So we, so we have a, a, a concept and, and uh, we're actually going to have some stuff coming out on it called be the bumblebee. Okay. And that's kind of our, our company value. I, I ran a business group for 10 years. That was in our value where, um, you know, the, the bumblebee is like the selfless, you know, pollinator of the, you know, of, of nature in that it goes in and it, it just goes from flower to flower, plant to plant. It removes everything that prevents the plant from growing a flower from blooming. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, just goes about their day doing that. And so we, we have this value of, you know, be the bumblebee, look to the people around us that who can we, you know, reach out to or talk to or, um, you know, encourage that maybe we can remove some of the things that might prevent them from blooming. And so uh, we're always, you know, saying like, Hey, be the bee today, like be the bumblebee today, like make, make things better, you know? And, um, and what's very cool about it is that, uh, you know, what the bumblebee removes, they take back to the hive, right. And there's, a, we have a whole arc on the hive, you know, being, being a part of the hive, protecting the queen, stuff like that. But, but what the, what the, what the, uh, what the bumblebee makes is honey and honey is the only food that doesn't go bad, never spoiled. So when you're actively engaged that way, you're, 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 you're helping people bloom and, and grow and what you, what you create from that lasts forever. And so, um, I don't know, everybody has their beliefs of, you know, mother nature, God, spiritual. I, I certainly have mine. Um, I don't know where all that stuff is kept score, but I, I think it is. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, yeah, so that, so he had heard me, uh, say that and, and it brought me in and yeah, so that was a, that was a, a an, an interesting day. And then I worked with his son's uh, like 12 year old travel team like an hour later and i was like still traumatized like <laughs> what so you do i know i mean i was looking on your website earlier baseballeducationcenter.com i see you pitching stuff hitting stuff recruiting you do speaking what do you like the most um i i i think um i mean speaking is the thing that comes naturally to me uh it's funny i talked about having adhd if you know like, you know, this was on my calendar today and just thinking about it. And I took time to look through all your stuff, which was, is amazing and, and uh, really impressed with that. Um, I, when I have like a date on the calendar and I'm presenting in any way, I don't experience any symptoms of ADHD. So um, that's, that's, you know, that's probably to me the, the, the thing that comes naturally to me. But um, I, I think coaching is the thing that I was born to do. And it's funny because I've had a lot of experiences that have trickled out, you know, like I, I, uh, because of business and speaking, I, I got to do consulting with two different Navy SEALs at, at one point, at one point on my client roster, I had gotten a lot, a lot of fringe people. I had 
uh, everything from a Navy SEAL to a ballerina. And so like, you know, so a coaching is coaching, you know, and so um, we have about, uh, we have a group of players that we mentor and work with and, um, and, and like, it's just been, it's just been really great to, to, you know, to kind of dabble in a few different areas, but um, there's, you know, I'm never, uh, to me, I'm a, I'm a baseball coach, you know, and I remember walking through the airport one time uh, early on when my kids were young, and I had like the double stroller and there was, they were, somebody was doing something on this one, ESPN, like with Maddox and his delivery. And I stopped and I'm just watching this. I can't hear it, you know, cause I'm one of those TVs that are up and, and, and meanwhile, like <laughs> the kids are running, you know, or, and, and I'm, I'm just like, cause I'm so fast. I want to know what's going on. You know, so I think it's, I don't think I'll ever get bored of, of that aspect. And, and I really, I love the player. I love, I love, love, love the player. When, when I speak, I speak to colleges a lot, like teams. And the first question I ask them is, what are you doing here? It's a weird opening, right? I said, look, you know, all of your friends are out doing college stuff, dating, even starting their careers, interning, whatever, right? Like, what are you doing here? Um, somebody has calculated the odds for you, right? Some uncle has sat down with you at a family thing and given you, yeah, you know, only 1.2 for, you know, someone's calculated the future for you and all the things we said about baseball, right? It sucks. It's unfair. Like, what are you doing here? And, and so I, I, I answer it for them. And I, same thing I said with coaches, there's something that comes alive and you, when you play baseball, doesn't come alive you at any other point. And so you, that's why you're here. You're searching for a feeling. Every pitcher has had the feeling at least once of a ball leaving their hand and saying, I don't care if Babe Ruth is there. No one's hitting that. We've, I've heard about it. I've never had it, but I've heard people hitting balls, you know, that, that come off where it doesn't even feel like anything happened. Like there wasn't any, it didn't feel like there was any contact and it just went right. Or, or a catcher framing a called third strike or throwing out a runner to end the inning. Like these are just things that, that we can't describe and they're feelings. And we want to have more of those feelings. That's why I was like, that's what I'm here to help you guys do is have more of those feelings, have more of that, more, be more successful with that. And what's the most encouraging thing to me, I'm, I think I'm in the minority with guys in my age group. I am more encouraged by this generation than anything, any, any other generation. I, I think I, I see them completely opposite. The first thing I always tell coaches my age is, you know, when they complain about the iPads or the, the phone, or the, I was like, hey, it was our generation that invented those. Like, we were the ones that thought it was a great idea to have these things, right? No 16-year-old kid invented that. Um, and I think that, that the, the I think this generation, especially the kids who choose baseball, and maybe I'm biased, but it doesn't mean I'm wrong. I think that, that leaders can come from baseball as long as we keep kids in it. Because again, they've chosen this game. It's unfair. It's unjust. You can't solve baseball, right? I, I, LeBron James can dribble and just impose his six foot 10 frame, 230. He can impose that on somebody, right? Um, uh, Tom Brady can throw the ball to Gronk every time if he wants, right? The, the best player is touching the ball. Um, we, you know, we, can, we can find Gretzky on every time down the ice if we try, right? Or we can optimize for it. We can't put up our best hitter every inning. We can't throw our best pitcher every single game. It, it's, a, it's a game that's unfair. There's no weight classes, right? There's nothing to say like, hey, there's a 200, 6'2", 200-pound pitcher out there. Let's put up. No, you got to put up Pedroia against Randy Johnson, right? And so in this game, so we've chosen this game that you can't solve. You can't figure out. It's unfair. It's unjust. And yet we still want to do it. To me, that speaks more about the person than anything else, because you've seen all the other games. 
You know, so I asked this question. You'll love this as a hitting coach. If I give Steph Curry his open shot in the game, right? I, he could pick <clears throat> 10 out of t- 10 times. How many does he hit? Almost 10, probably. Probably right. all. No of them. one's ever said less than nine. Yeah, no yeah, one's ever said yeah. nine. But if I give you your pitch 10 times and you hit it square, how many hits you get? In a game against an actual live pitcher, I mean, three or four. I mean, it's not nine, right? It's not. Yeah, it's nine definitely not nine. And even even if I do square it up for, I mean, it could be right at somebody twice. Yeah. So we've chosen this game. That's that speaks to who that player is. There's something special inside that player that wants something that has texture. They don't want straight lines. And so, to me, that's the most encouraging thing about baseball players today is that I think we can take that. And we can, and, and we can, first of all, I encourage everybody to continue to coach because I think, um, not that I really have many great moments as a player, but I, 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 I there's, if you, I always say, if you think it's great as a player, wait till you experience it as a coach, you know, it really is rewarding. And to keep these people in the game, um, because that to me is just, I, I, I just think that the future, if we can get kids to see that about themselves, especially in today's day and age, right? In today's day and age that, that kids are still choosing baseball. Um, to me, I, I, that's just so hopeful for me about, um, you know, the future. I, I don't worry about the future also. Cause you know, I, I, I sit a lot in the, in the Starbucks across from the university and, and I listen to the conversations these kids have. Um, yeah, I'm not worried about the future at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's good yeah. stuff. Paul, this has been a ton of fun, man. I appreciate you. Yeah, it was on. great. Um, you have a, you have a massive audience. Uh, I think you, I think I read over like 750,000 email subscribers, which I thought I was doing okay with like 2000. So, I mean, you're crushing it, dude, which is awesome. We've been doing a long time. We've been doing a long time. But but it's, it's awesome. (laughs) You're putting out really good stuff too. So, um, where, what's the best way for people to connect with you if they, if they want to talk with you further? Um, yeah, they can go to baseballeducationcenter.com. Um, if they want to like, kind of read more about me personally, there's uh, paulreddick567.com. Uh, and that's also my Twitter, which I'm new, the social media. They finally broke me. Um, and, uh, um, and Or they could text me. And my phone number is 201-323-0840, 201-323-0840. Or they could just email me direct at paulreddick at Gmail. So that's one of the things that uh, I will always help anyone that I can. And I think there's a lot of my colleagues who have kind of positioned themselves as um, unavailable, unreachable, and some of that's marketing. I get that, but uh, I, I'm not willing to, I, I just, I just picture like Ty Cobb waiting for me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> spikes cool. up, you know, spikes up. <laughs> right. Well, I think we've done this. We've done about 260 of these episodes. And I think you're the first guest. Um, that's ever given out their phone number on, on the podcast. So that's pretty sweet. That's pretty cool. Yeah, like absolutely. Always, I'm always available to anyone that in any way that I can, if I can provide help. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm there for it. Awesome. Paul, appreciate it, man. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you, Patrick. I appreciate it. This is great. Anytime I'd be more than happy to come on. Thank you.